Um, we were talking last week about thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, um, and then we talked a little bit about what it means to pray for daily bread and to forgive trespasses. Um, we're kind of blowing through all this at an incredible pace. We're going to have to kind of slow down, I think, or we're going to go way too fast through things. Um, but I want to pick up at the very end of the section on uh, the forgiveness of sins, um, forgiving others. This will be question 198. Um, we spoke of uh, forgiveness as, um, as a kind of dropping the, the question, dropping the debt, canceling the debt. Um, have you ever had the opportunity to forgive a debt? Anyone? Yeah, this is this is this is an incredible. Some of you have just said, "Well, I'd love to have debts forgiven." That's for sure. <laughs> um, but but to forgive a debt to say um, we're no longer going to hold this over your head. I was once the rector of a church that, um, for whatever reason, had some uh, properties that were being rented out, and there was a furniture store next door that rented three thousand square feet from us, and uh, it was on the other behind my office. And they got about four or five months in arrears on their rent. And I went in and just said, well, you know, what can you do <laughs> to work with us? And they said, well, we've got, all we have is furniture. And if we pay you, we won't be able to do this and that. And the other thing I said, well, okay, what can, you know, and basically we worked out. So they, they gave us new office furniture <laughs> and, and it was like maybe a thousand bucks worth. And we canceled $5,000 of debt. You know, it was just a really, and you could see the, the relief on these guys as they realized that they could do that. Um, we probably should have just said we're done with because the furniture we got wasn't that great. <laughs> but it's just to say that, that, that to cancel a debt is at the very heart of the gospel, isn't it? We owe a debt to God that we cannot possibly repay. I mean, there's, no, there's, nothing, there's nothing we can do about it to make it right. Um, which is actually something I think, you know, parents need to know this, that we're often very tempted to say to our kids, like, you need to make this right with me. And what's the answer to that question? There's no way to make it right. Um, that's been broken, and the only way for me to make it right is to forgive. Um, I have to let go of it. I have to drop it. And I was telling you last week that one of the, one of the we have a couple Bible translators in our church, and he was saying that in the language that he's been working on, the language of forgiveness is the same language you use for letting a fish off the hook when you catch a fish. It's like, I was going to take you home and eat you, but now I'm not going to. Um, that's, that's a wonderful image, isn't it? To say, uh, you know, what, 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 uh, what should have resulted um, in punishment in the gospel uh, results in forgiveness and mercy. Um, so the question, why should you forgive others? Question 198, why should you forgive others? I should forgive others because while I was still a sinner, God forgave me. How will you forgive? Well, let's, 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 let's spend some time on this. Um, the forgiveness of God, this lavish forgiveness of God, um, is, is, um, is what, at the end of the day, compels us to be a people of forgiveness. You may remember the parable of the guy who uh, owes the master of the house an unbelievable sum of money. Um, the best translation we could possibly come up with in today's dollars is basically a bajillion dollars. It's a nonsensical amount of money. Uh, and what does he do after being forgiven this debt? He goes out and shakes down the underlings for 20 bucks here, 50 bucks there. You know, 
and and what do you say, what do you think when you say that? I mean, I mean, I think I think unspeakable things when I hear about this. Like that's offensive, and it is offensive um, because of of the lavishness of this gift of forgiveness that we find uh, in Jesus. So the question 199, how, should, how will you forgive others? I will forgive others by extending to them the love of Christ and by choosing not to hold against them the hurts they have inflicted, whether they ask forgiveness or not. But this is a really important um, point in the catechism that I love and, and, and indeed uh, advocate for um, in these two questions. And the first part speaks to the quality of forgiveness and how that forgiveness uh, takes place, and, and I want to say a couple things about that. One is that in forgiving others, we extend to them of the love of Christ. So our, our posture towards those who sinned against us is not retribution, it's not revenge, it's not uh, wrath, it's not anger. What is it? It's love. Well, how do you get from wrath and anger to love? Especially when it's been when you've been horribly grieved, grievously sinned against, by willing yourself to love the other. No, no, no. Well, the first part is not to love with your own love, because your own love is shabby. <laughs> the love of Christ is much more powerful, and for that, um, the the way to get that is is to pray. And I think that's something that's not outlined in the Catechism, but it has to be said that um, the the way to get over our anger is to pray. Um, but the second part of this is really important. We choose, we choose, there's a conscious choice here, by choosing not to hold against them the hurts they've afflicted, whether they ask forgiveness or not. So there's two parts of the end of that. But you and I are given the ability to choose not to hold those things against people. Um, I remember some years ago, I had, I had to, I felt, felt myself in the unenviable position of having to give a bishop advice. And the advice was not bishop was not advice that he was going to like because the advice was uh, someone you the diocese had co-signed for a loan of seven hundred thousand dollars with a church, and there was no way this church could possibly pay that debt. And I said to him, Bishop, I think we have to just eat this. Um, and he said, Well, this is their debt; they need to pay it. I said, They can't. And either we're going to pay it and find a way to, or we're going to have, we're going to lose these people um, because they will be in a position of slavery to us and it will be unhealthy. Um, I don't know whatever happened to that, <laughs> but it's just to say that, that, uh, that uh, and that's why I would actually say churches don't need to be signing for debt for others unless we're completely willing to just say, and we can forgive this at any time and we will forgive it at any time. And, and that's just how it's going to be. Um, but it's to say that, that we choose we make a conscious choice not to hold this against them. And the debt helps you see it. But what about when it's not a financial debt or a financial liability? What about when it's a hurt that's been inflicted that you have not recovered from? How do you choose not to hold that against them? Um, it takes a conscious effort, but it includes things like when you see them, to, to choose not to say, this is the person who hurt me so much. Um, instead, to, to choose to say, think about them by name is one answer. Um, but to just, just 
set it aside, say, there's, there's no way that they can pay this back, so I'm not going to hold it against them. Um, and what do we learn through that? It's an amazing thing that we learn when that happens. He actually, we actually are able to, in a way, experience what it's like for Jesus to forgive sinners. Um, what it's like to endure pain and have to eat the pain because there's no way to take it out on the one who sinned against us. Um, this is often hard to do because we say, well, he didn't ask for forgiveness, so how should I forgive him? He didn't ask for it. He doesn't even want to be forgiven. Why should I forgive him? And he says, it's got nothing to do with the one who sinned against you. It's got everything to do with you. Um, this is a powerful thing, though, friends. It's a powerful thing. Uh, when we can be a people who forgive even when that forgiveness is not asked for. Um, now, does this mean <laughs> that the relationship will be restored? And we should ask in question 200, will your forgiveness of others bring reconciliation with them? Not always. Forgiveness is an attitude of my heart, desiring the blessing of my neighbor, but my forgiveness may not result in my neighbor's repentance and the restoration of our relationship. This is a really key, important point, and that is that uh, forgiveness does not necessitate the restoration of relationship. It can lead to that, right? I mean, absolutely it can lead to that, but it doesn't necessitate it. Um, let me describe for you what I mean. Um, I'm sure that you can think of people who, are, uh, who have been in your life at times who are completely and utterly toxic, and you'd rather not have the same relationship you had with him before because you know it would be bad for you. Um, and you don't want to have it again. Or the relationship is lessened. Their access to you is less. And this is a good thing, actually. This, uh, this, this uh, construction of boundaries is really important. It helps us live as free people. Um, we're often told in the society at large that forgiveness means to restore the relationship. And in the Christian terms, that's not exactly what, what happens. Um, it's not even close to what happens. Uh, what, what forgiveness, forgiveness is always, it always subsists in an attitude of the heart. Well, how can I know that I've forgiven someone? Ah, uh, <laughs> when I don't carry it around. Um, when instead of, uh, you know, in the, in the daily office, we, also, we often get to the imprecatory psalms, you know, these psalms of vengeance against enemies. <laughs> and it's, it can be very cathartic, right? It can be like, uh, oh, I'm thinking of so-and-so when I read this psalm. <laughs> and, and you have to realize, like, that means I haven't forgiven because I still bear this. Um, what we find is that when we sit down to pray, our thoughts go towards the blessing of those who've hurt us, for those who've, uh, who've sinned against us. Um, and, and it's the desire of our heart that they, that they find blessing, that God bless them. Um, and that's what we take with us in prayer. Um, and this, I will say, can be an amazing thing, especially in the midst of broken relationships, uh, to pray for the other, to pray daily for the other. Um, it can be painful, of course, because you don't see that relationship restored, and you probably won't, actually, in a lot of cases. Um, but... What do we learn again from this? We were, we were reading last week a wonderful passage in, in uh, Julian of Norwich with the Brazos Fellows where 
Julian's talking about the extent to which Christ's sacrifice on the cross is effective um, for sin. And she's actually without, I think she may know it, but she's, she's addressing this grand theological question, which is, is the, is the extent of Christ's sacrifice uh, endless? Or is it just enough to save the elect? Or is it just enough to cover the sins of the whole world? And Julian says something very powerful, I think, which corrects all of it. She says, he didn't just offer a sacrifice for sins. He went to the fullest extent possible for sin. I love that. Because it says he just he went to the max for sin. Um, and I think when we think about those who have harmed us, who have sinned against us, we have to start to think about how we can take it to the max for them. Now, does that mean a restoration of relationship? Well, it doesn't with Jesus. Not, he's not restored to relationship with all people. Um, it means that he has offered himself for sins that will never be redeemed, but have nonetheless been sacrificed for. Um, and I think that's a, a great look into what praying for those who've sinned against us looks like. Um, an amazing thing. All right, the sixth petition. Are you ready? What is the sixth petition? The sixth petition is, and lead us not into temptation. Um, I will say from the outset that this is a very controversial phrase these days. Um, there are those who want to um, alter the translation, and I've been talking with a lot of Greek nerds in the parish about this, and this comes up, uh, where the, the objection is, well, God doesn't lead anybody into temptation. I mean, read James. That doesn't happen. So why are we praying for this thing that can't happen, praying against this thing that by definition can't happen? And, uh, and I'm going to get into it a little bit. Um, so some people are saying, well, well, let's offer like save us from the time of trial or something, you know, something like that. Um, but this is a really important thing, and I think we'll, we'll see it as it goes out. What is temptation? Temptation is an enticement to abandon total trust in God or to violate his commandments. So temptation is simply this, an enticement. Um, have you ever been enticed by something? Oh, oh yes. You know, some, something amazing that goes on in the brain. It's like Chick-fil-A is having dollar off milkshake day. And all of a sudden it's like, I didn't want a milkshake, but now I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it, it could be any number of things, right? Uh, it can be, I wasn't even thinking about doing this to the house, but now that this offer, this amazing offer is there, I'm going to go do it. This is awesome. I can do this. Um, you wouldn't have done it otherwise, but there's an enticement involved. Um, temptation always involves this enticement. Um, it's, a, it's a subtle redirecting of our hearts. Um, to abandon total trust in God or to violate his commandments. Um, so we see this, 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 this dual uh, problem of abandonment and violation. It's both to walk away, right, from God, but also to, to transgress against God. Um, and indeed, the two seem, dis seem different, but they, they go together, don't they? Um, we find that uh, when we sin against God, we, we detach. We, uh, we, like Adam and Eve, hide. Um, what are the sources of temptation? My heart is tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil, all of which are enemies of God and of my spiritual well-being. Um, it's the heart that's tempted, and we have to get this right, 
Um, you know, we often think of the mind being tempted because we're very, you know, modern people and we think that we're just basically minds that inhabit bodies. Um, but the reality of it is that it's the heart. And by this, we don't mean this uh, beating organ in our chest. What do we mean? This, it's more like the center of our, of our affections, the center of our desires, the center of our will. Um, and it's this that, that, is, that is afflicted by uh, these things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, we've spoken of these in the past, but these are those things uh, which uh, Christians in repenting always, we turn our back on these things, on these enemies of God, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil. By here, the world does not mean uh, uh, the creation. Uh, world means much more like, uh, like the cultural world that we inhabit. Um, it's much more like the world of sports or the world of academia or the world of business or the world of whatever it might be, the world of politics, uh, to turn our back on it, uh, to turn our back on the flesh. And this is not to say that the flesh is evil. It's to say the, the desires of the flesh are evil. Um, and to turn against Satan. Um, and these are enemies of God. Um, and because they're enemies of God, they're enemies of, our, of, of the work of God in us for salvation. Uh, for our spiritual well-being, for our sanctification. And it's our heart that's enticed. Um, marketing people know this really well, right? They know that uh, you, you just don't argue with people to buy something. I mean, when was the last time you saw a car ad that said something like, you know, our gas mileage is like 20% better than the competitor's? You just don't see it anymore, right? Because, because here's the problem. Everybody knows what happened to Volkswagen, right? They all know that you can't really make those claims, but they also know that nobody cares. Um, the car is sold because it's appealing, because of the life you'll have if you have this car, um, because of the, the feeling it will give you. Um, you know, it's things like, if, when was the last time you watched daytime television and you see ads for all kinds of prescription drugs, right? And I always love these, I always love these ads because they have to disclose the possible side effects at the end and they're horrifying, right? But what do they show the entire thing? It doesn't matter what the drug is for, right? I mean, it can be for IBS medication, it can be for, uh, you know, antidepressants, it can be for, uh, who knows what else, like, skin irritation problems and all kinds of things. But they will always show people canoeing and kayaking and going for runs. And I'm like, these people just had heart disease apparently and now they're out canoeing and running, um, which more power to them. But, but it's this alluring idea that if you take this medication, you'll have this, you'll have this renewal of an outdoorsy life, you know. Um, you'll all of a sudden be running marathons and, you know, picking up your grandchildren and and, and I think doctors know this is, this, is, this is just marketing, right? They have to kind of break this and say, well, it might help you do that, it might not. Um, we hope it will. But you're, you know, if you, especially if you, if you deal with chronic illness, you know, it's this hope of this active life that's, that's deceitful, really. It holds out fruit that you can't really get. Um, and, and temptation is just like that. It's just like that. Um, note what happens to Adam and Eve in the garden. What's the temptation that Satan puts on offer? You'll be like God. Yeah, you, you can be like God. That's, that's the temptation. Um, 
I always love you know thinking about that and then thinking about uh, the name of the archangel Michael. Do you know what it means? It means who is like God. What's the answer? No one. Um, we have to have this constantly playing in our brains and in our hearts because it teaches us that um, that what we desire we cannot have because of our nature. Um, uh, we can't have it apart from grace. Um, this idea that we can be like God is such a, is such an alluring idea. Um, there's also all these things as well, which is you know. Um, I long ago decided that that you know I was never going to have cable, was never going to have. But now I've got Netflix and all these other things, and I've got a little TV in our bedroom, and that's it. And, and we're so glad of that. But occasionally, I think, w- wouldn't it be nice to have a seventy-inch high-definition TV? And I think I could do that. I'd have such a better life. Um, or I deserve that. Right? I deserve to have a nicer car. I deserve to have a nicer house. I deserve to have this. And, and what's the reality? I deserve flatly nothing. Um, but there's this constant enticement. Um, and it's the enticement to possess um, rather than to be a steward. Um, it's constant. Let's ask the next question. What kind of protection from temptation do you ask for? Knowing Satan's hatred and my weakness, I ask God to keep me from sin and danger. Now, that's where we get to the controversy. This idea that God would lead us into temptation is not actually at the heart of this prayer. Um, it's, what's actually being asked here is that God would keep me from these various enticements, um, would keep me from sin and from danger by his grace. That's what's, that's what's being prayed for, um, is to be relieved of this burden of temptation. Um, we know Satan's hatred. Um, and I, indeed, I would say that those who know Satan's hatred more than anyone else are those who are actually deeply applying themselves to a life of sanctification, who are actually actively pursuing uh, the life of grace. Um, I can tell you that in my own life, when I've most actively pursued uh, sanctification, when I've most, when I've um, been in a sense in my in my life uh, uh, running up the score on the gates of hell, <laughs> even if it's just a few points here and a few points there. Uh, the activity of of the enemy ramps up big time. Um, we know Satan's hatred. We know our own weakness, and so we ask God to keep us from sin and danger. In a, in a very real way, the, this this petition in the Lord's Prayer is a humble petition. Because what would, what would the opposite of humility look like in a prayer? It would say something like this. Let me triumph over temptation. Let me win. Um, but Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, you lead us not into temptation. You save us from this temptation. Um, that's an amazing thing. So finally, we'll wrap it up with these last two questions. Does God lead you into temptation? No, God never attempts to anyone to sin, nor is he the cause of any sin, but so that I may grow in obedience, he does allow me to be tested on occasion as he allowed Jesus. Here we have to differentiate between uh, the active will of God and, the, and what we often call the permissive will of God. Um, it's, it's been a danger forever to fail to differentiate between these two things. Um, 
leads to a lot of problems. Uh, uh, many arguments um, that, that take place about the nature of God and about whether even God exists, the, one of the fundamental stumbling points is failing to differentiate between what is an active will and what is a permissive will. Let me explain to you what I mean. Um, I always use this analogy, uh, and it's not happening quite so much anymore, surprisingly enough. Uh, but my kids used to love to climb on the back of this leather couch we have in our living room. They would do it all, all the time. And I would always sit there and say, don't, don't you get on the back of that couch. You're going to fall and you're going to hurt yourself. And what would happen? They'd climb on the back of the couch. They'd fall. They'd hurt themselves. And I would be sitting in my chair on the other side of the room watching this go down. And at one point, one of the kids fell, and the kid comes up to me, crying. Why didn't you tell me? Like, I did tell you. <laughs> Why didn't you catch me? Because it was my will that you, and I told her, I was like, it was my will that you experienced this. It was my will to, to let you do this. Was it my will that you endure pain? No. Um, but I let it happen. I let it go down for your good. Um, is falling off the back of the couch good? No. Um, but, but God allows these things to happen to us. Um, and, and we often don't know the reason. Um, but when, and this is such an important part of the Christian spiritual life, when we endure trials, we need to not say, why God? That's the wrong question to ask. What do we need to say? What do you, we need to ask this, this really important question. What do you want me to do with this? Um, when we think why, and we default to why, um, it raises this very prideful question. But instead we need to ask, well, what do you want me to do with this? This is an important thing. Um, we also know, and this is important in Scripture, that God does allow his people to be tempted. And he allows Jesus to be tempted. Jesus goes out in the wilderness. He's tempted by the devil. Um, and, and you might say, what kind of father would allow their son to be so deeply tempted? And, and now that and some fathers would say, a good father. <laughs> a good father would allow that. Um, we know this of our own children. We, we let our children go through these things. It's important. What are ways to guard against temptation? I can guard against temptation by praying the Lord's Prayer, asking for strength, confessing my sins, recalling God's word, and living accountably with others. Let's break this down a little bit. The Lord's Prayer is an incredible guard against temptation. Um, I'm growing more and more convinced that uh, Satan hates to hear the Lord's Prayer. I mean, just the words, Our Father, send shivers down the spine of the, of the enemy. I mean, do you know he hates that phrase, right? And if, if you need proof, read the screw tape letters, right? Um, the, the, the demon uh, screw tape is always kind of saying, our father below, like, because, it's, because it's a way of, of slighting the fatherhood of God the Father. Um, we, 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 you'll note that the Lord's Prayer is not about saying, give us the power and give us the ability and give us all the stuff. What is it? It's give us daily bread. Helps to be people of forgiveness. Um, forgive us our sins. Uh, lead us not into temptation. It's a very humble prayer. Um, it doesn't build up our humility. It doesn't build up our sense of self. Um, and the enemy hates that. So pray the Lord's Prayer. 
Um, asking for strength. You know, it's not a sin to ask for strength. It's a good thing to ask for strength. We ask for grace. Um, we Christians believe that God can perfect our nature by his grace. That God can actually complete and make up for what is lacking in our, in our fallen nature by grace. Um, we, when we ask for strength, we receive it. Also, by confessing, my, by confessing our sins. Um, you know, part, part of the thing that will often happen is somebody will come and they'll confess to me that they've been tempted by the same sin repeatedly forever and ever. And I said, well, well, but what about confessing your sins? Yeah, yeah, but I just want to know how to beat it. Like, no, confession of sin is a really important thing. Uh, to do this on a regular daily basis, to admit our fault, is a gigantic step forward in beating that. Because here's what happens when you confess your sins. When you confess your sins, you are actually uh, allowing God to adjust your will away from those temptations, away from those things that plague you. You're saying, I don't want to, be def- I don't want to live like that anymore. I don't want it. I don't want to deal with it anymore. Um, and what happens when we confess our sins is we basically drop them at the foot of the cross and say, I'm done dealing with it. You deal with it. <laughs> and, and, and what happens? He deals with it. Yeah, he deals with it. Um, so what will often happen is you get caught in this, in this cycle of saying, I'm going to just stand really tall against sin and temptation and I'm going to win. And actually what you find is that's when you're most vulnerable. Um, I often liken this to what happens when we take our trash out to the curb. Do you follow the garbage company out to the dump to make sure they do it right? I don't. Um, our job is actually pretty simple. It's take the trash to the curb. Now, I know if you're like me, you will often forget to do that, and then you curse yourself. You're like, why didn't I remember to do that? But, but you, you engage in this habit, which is every Thursday morning, I take the trash out to the curb. Sometimes I do it Wednesday night, but I do it regularly. And by doing it regularly and by being moderate in how I do it and what I do, I actually have a trash-free house and driveway. It's amazing what happens. Regular confession of sin and regular examination of conscience is essential to the Christian spiritual life. And you don't do it to beat yourself up. That's not the point. You do it to open yourself to God's grace. Um, So I want to encourage you to that. A regular examination of conscience is essential. Um, It's how we deposit our sins at the foot of the cross um, and how we own them. Um, It's also a really big help, and I'll say this too, because when we're young, um, our idea of sin is not fully formed, is it? There are certain things that you do now that you're unaware of how absolutely shamefully sinful they are. You're not ready. It's okay. You'll get there. Later on in life, you'll start to realize, oh my goodness, what a turd I was back then. (laughs) And you'll start to say, I need that redeemed too. And that's a tough thing, right? Um, But by by participating in this regular examination of conscience, your mind is opened up, your heart is opened up to see your own fault more clearly. Um, and you'll grow. That's how it happens. You'll grow. You will absolutely grow. All right. Recalling God's word. Absolutely essential. Um, I was telling somebody recently, um, at least once a year, I try to read the Gospels through in one sitting. Just straight up, just, you know, straight through. Uh, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Um, and to do it slowly enough so that I can actually recollect. Um, but it's amazing what happens when I get through the whole of the four Gospels. I start to think, um, and it starts to give me a, a process. And I do this every year, around about January, um, where it, it's, I start to say, this is what I really want to focus on this coming year in terms of sanctification. Um, that's a wonderful guard against temptation. It helps me to see um, where, my, where my blind spots are. And living accountably with others. Um, many churches today have accountability groups. That's a great thing. It's an important thing. Living in community with others is really important. Um, it's also important to, um, you know, this is why we really encourage spiritual direction. Um, it's important that you have a spiritual director that you can be open with about um, the state of, of, your, of your life of temptation. Um, it's also really important that if you struggle with this on a regular basis, to have a priest that you go to confession with. Um, it can be an amazingly freeing thing. And here's what I really want to say about that. It's an amazingly freeing thing to have somebody in your life who is not out to judge you um, and is absolutely not out to, uh, and by accountability, what we don't mean is making you feel ashamed of, of your sin. That's not the point. By accountability, what we mean is hold your feet to the fire so that you can confess it fully. Um, I'll very often be in the middle of confession and say, tell me more about that. <laughs> and somebody will say, really? You really need, yeah. I want, not for my benefit, yours, for yours. It should be more clear. What do you mean? What actually happened? Um, and, and a lot of it is just getting over that embarrassment, um, getting over the, the sense of, um, of coyness about this and saying, I really want to fully embrace um, the forgiveness which Jesus offers. Um, so whether you've got an accountability group, that's a really important thing. Uh, the problem that I'd warn you against is that sometimes these things become almost like behavior management groups where it's like uh, we're all going to work together to embrace these, uh, these, tr these tricks and tools that will help us to avoid this certain thing. Um, what can often happen in the case of that is that the accountability group becomes uh, almost more helpful to you sinning than it does to you having victory over sin. Um, so I want to encourage you against that. And, and very often it's not about offering forgiveness. It's not about offering grace. It's about offering tools. And tools are not the point. Um, that's not where it goes. So I want to keep, keep that in mind. All right. The seventh petition. What is the seventh petition? The seventh petition is, but deliver us from evil. What is evil? Evil is the willful perversion of God's good will that defies his holiness and mars his good creation. Um, evil is the willful perversion of God's good will. Um, this is a rather Augustinian uh, idea, but it's the idea that, um, that evil uh, is, in a sense, a privation of the good. You know, there's this old saying that uh, Satan does not have his own clay. You can't create anything. You can't even create ideas for crying out loud. Um, all he can do is twist them, turn them, uh, uh, mold them, uh, bend them. Um, so there's this perversion of God's goodwill. And this defies his holiness and mars his good creation. Now note we didn't say destroys his good creation. We said mars his good creation. Um, it's very much akin to what happens when you see a beautiful painting 
Um, and have you ever been to a museum and seen a painting that's been restored? And you, and you see the picture down below of what it used to look like before it was restored, and you say, my goodness, it's like a totally different painting. And it's not just all the dirt and the ash and the, and the smoke damage. It's worse than that. It's that various people have gone in and added their disgusting flourishes on top of this painting, which was utterly beautiful before. It's been marred. Um, I think about... Uh, um, I don't know if you've ever had a front door that, that is wood and through the years it weathers and the door bends and the door twists and the door is no longer good. Was it originally a good door? Oh, you bet. A wood, an original wood door is a great thing. But over time, they, they see problems. Um, they're marred. Um, and they no longer offer the protection they once offered. Um, Evil is this willful perversion of God's goodness. Um, and we have to say it like that, because otherwise we get into these serious theological problems, which we call dualism. It's this idea that, that the universe is uh, composed of light and dark, of God constantly fighting against evil um, and not having mastery over all creation. Um, we get into this territory that's, that's basically this idea of God and Satan sort of duking it out for all eternity and no one ever being quite sure who's going to wind up on top. Um, I would say most people probably believe this. This is not a Christian idea. In fact, Christians have, have, have opposed it um, very well. If God made the world good at its creation, why does he permit evil? God made rational creatures free to worship, love, and obey him, but also free to reject his love rebel against him, and choose evil, as the human race has done. You know, uh, we Anglicans believe in free will. We're unabashed believers in free will. Uh, many people will say, well, hey, we know that's not true because we're captive to sin. Well, being captive to sin and having a free will are not, uh, are not you know, fundamentally opposed ideas. <laughs> uh, the, the fact that our, our, um, our will is deformed uh, does not mean that it doesn't exist. Um, and God made us rational creatures with reason. Um, this doesn't mean that we always act rationally, but it does mean that we do have reason. Uh, free. What does it mean to be free? What are we free for? We're free to do whatever? Well, that's not really what freedom means. Um, freedom is always, good. true freedom is always oriented towards the good. It's always oriented towards worship. It's always oriented towards love. Always oriented towards obedience to God. When we talk about how, and this is, this is often how our, how our nation has become deformed, but, but very often the idea and the way that people will speak about the American ideals of freedom is that it's the freedom to do any number of things, whether good or evil. When the Founding Fathers spoke about freedom, they were speaking about the freedom to pursue virtue as a very personal exercise. Um, and the, in the ancient world, this is freedom in its most basic sense, is we're free to pursue the good. Um, but that being free also means that we're also free to reject God's love, to rebel against him, to choose evil. Um, and the human race has done this. Not just in our first parents, but we do it ourselves, don't we? Um, we exercise our will for uh, against the good and towards, and, and we choose evil. 
Um, and this is, this, is, this is what we mean by evil in, in the most basic sense, that we've chosen it. Did evil exist before the human race embraced it? Yes, Satan and the other demons with him had already opposed God and chosen evil. We actually believe that the, uh, the, all of the spiritual forces of wickedness uh, at some point fell, um, and um, this, is a, this is, in a sense, a greater disaster than the, race, than the fall of the human race, and there's a reason why. Um, if you can imagine a being endowed with perfect reason, like an angel, and that, and that angel actually chooses evil, unlike us, that being actually becomes evil. They're not just captive to it. Um, it's not just that their will's bent. They become evil. Um, and they can't be otherwise. Um, so the teaching on, on Satan is this, that, that Satan was a fallen angel, is a fallen angel. Uh, used to do one thing, now does this. <laughs> it will be that way forever. Um, and, uh, and, and this means that um, when we think about this, uh, Christians, and this is a really unique thing about Christian theology is that we hold that Satan himself is a creature created by God himself. That's a scandalous thing to believe, but it's a true thing to believe. What are Satan and demons? Demons of whom Satan is chief are fallen angels. Satan rebelled against God and led other angels to follow him. They now cause spiritual and sometimes physical harm to mortals, and they sow lies that lead to confusion, despair, sin, and death. Uh, they now cause spiritual and sometimes physical harm. Um, this is a really hard teaching, but it's the truth that um, the spiritual forces of, of wickedness uh, will stop at nothing to have victory over you. Um, it is offensive to them what God has done for you. Do you see that? Do you get, do you get that? I mean, what we just talked about in Christmas and Epiphany is offensive to angels. Like, they look at this, and they look at the incarnation, and they say, why would God do that? That's so irrational. Um, why, why would he do that? Um, and also, they, they take it as a slight against them. This spiritual and sometimes physical harm uh, is, is simply the truth. that, um, And we see this in Scripture, don't we? I mean, remember the, remember the man who's possessed by the legion of demons. Um, he's caused physical harm by these demons. Um, we see this in the world today. People who are uh, possessed hurt themselves. People who are constantly tormented by evil, they hurt themselves in, a, in completely irrational ways. Um, it's hard to watch. It's hard to witness, but it, it does happen. What's the primary operation of, uh, of our spiritual enemy? Um, first, they sow lies. Uh, Satan is often called the father of lies in Scripture. Um, remember, he can't make up truth. He can't really create anything. So, so how does he, he operate? a little twist. <laughs> We're going to put a little take on that. We're going to turn it just a little bit. Um, these lies uh, lead to confusion. Um, one of the things that I would say to you, you know that you are being assaulted 
uh, by evil when there's confusion in your life. Um, when you think things that you certainly know are not true. Um, when you are in times of despair and, and doubt and you, uh, you say things that just aren't true. Um, confusion, despair. If you deal with despair on a regular basis and it's become something which is um, which is seems to be very difficult for you to overcome, um, uh, this is the time to recruit some help, I think. Um, it's also the time to start to understand that um, it's not your situation that's leading you to despair because lots of people face tough, tough situations and they, and they endure it. Um, but you're being tempted to see it as... as uh, as God letting go of you and abandoning you. Um, and, uh, and the subtle suggestion and the enticement there is to say, God doesn't care about you. Um, so you should despair. Despair will be good for you. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you've ever thought that, right? That my own despair is good for me. I have. Um, and I recognize that for what it is, which is the temptation of the enemy to despair. Finally, to sin and to death. Um, this is a hard thing to even say, but, but we know that we're tempted to sin, right? That's, the, that's almost the easy part to get through you. Uh, but that uh, these lies uh, and confusion and, and despair um, can lead to death is a scary proposition. Um, but it is true. It's absolutely true. Um, I, have, I have known people through the years who were uh, living in such a state of despair um, that they either committed suicide or their just health went downhill, 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 downhill until they died at young ages. Um, and it wasn't drug use and it wasn't alcoholism. It was just total despair leading to death. Um, it's a horrible thing to watch. It's a horrible thing to witness. But what you and I as Christians need to understand is that this is not... This is not um, just purely some sort of social uh, problem. It's not some sort of you know, mental problem. Uh, that may be part of it, and it may be an important part of it. But we believe that we're fighting against uh, invisible forces of wickedness in this world. Um, and I don't think we pray like that. Um, and so uh, one of the things I want to encourage you uh, in this is... Uh, to call upon the holy angels to fight for you against despair, to fight for you uh, against confusion. Um, it it's, may seem to be a silly thing to do, but uh, I guarantee you that uh, the angels are more than happy to have a good battle here, here and there, <laughs> and in, in fact, enjoy the fight. <laughs> so uh, I want to encourage you in that direction. But I also want to encourage you to see that... Um, that uh, we do inhabit a world of, of, uh, where so much of what happens in this universe happens beyond this visible veil. Um, that there are invisible battles going on behind, behind the veil. Um, to believe that is not just fanciful, it's Christian. right? <laughs> it's a Christian idea about how the world works. Um, so I, I want to encourage you to pray in that way. Um, the other thing I want to encourage you to do is to embrace uh, in a very real way um, the visible, the seen, the tasted. Uh, 
what can often happen in, in, in so many ways is that we, we forget. We, we're people who just forget. We forget constantly. Um, and so it's amazing what will happen when, when we put uh, a cross in a room. And I've, I've occasionally had people who are struggling with terrible marriage problems. And I say, do you have a cross in your bedroom? And they'll say, no. He's like, put a cross in the bedroom. <laughs> First order of business, right? And, and what, and, and, you know, I've not always been this way, but I must tell you, I, I think, I, I do believe that married couples are often assaulted by the enemy. And that a simple thing like putting a cross in the bedroom can, can ward them off. This isn't superstition. This is just to say we're, we're claiming that this room is, 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 is sacred space. And you're not allowed here. Simple things like saying, and this is why we do a house blessing story in Epiphany, we're going to consecrate our houses as refuges against the enemy. And we're going to try to get everybody's house blessed in the whole parish. Right? Why would we do this? We, we do it because we know that we're fighting in this, in this level of battle. Um, okay, so. Um, and this is, where, this is where we get to the very end here. Um, what kind of protection from temptation do you ask for? Knowing Satan's hatred, oh, I'm sorry. How, I'm, I, my page flipped. How did Satan and his angels turn to evil? Satan and his angels were overcome by envy and pride and rebelled against God. Um, it's when we're overcome, and this is why I want to warn you, um, you know, when, when I ask people, what do you think the worst sins that we struggle against as Christians today are? They tell me uh, lust, greed, and they go on this long list of, you know, what are essentially sins of the flesh, and, and I always want to say, wrong, <laughs> try again. Our deepest and most hurtful temptations are always envy and pride, always. Um, if you deal with envy and pride in your life, you're dealing with a weight of sin that goes beyond what is embarrassing. It's a horrible burden. Um, but beware of it. Um, so, uh, and, and I'll give you a few, few thoughts on that. If you find yourself overcome by envy, and you should be on the watch for envy on a daily basis, and it, it can often look like this. It's, you know, why is it, why is it that my neighbor who's horrible to his wife and terrible to his kids, drives a Mercedes. No offense to Mercedes owners. Uh, and I've got this drunky car that doesn't work, and I try to be good to my kids and try to be good to my wife and try to be good to my family, and, and it just, it's about to fall apart. Why is that? There's an enticement going on here. That's a really good feeling to have. You feel the sense of injustice. You feel the sense of uh, entitlement. And then you think you're entitled to want what they have and get what they have and have what they have. Um, envy is a serious problem today. If you turn on the news, you will see envy writ large. Um, and I'm not saying there's no such thing as injustice, but a lot of it is just envy. It's just pure unadulterated envy. And the problem with envy is that it leads to violence. Think about one of the very first stories in Scripture is Cain and Abel. And what does it lead to? Leads to, leads to murder. Um, and our nation, I will say this, teeters on the edge of becoming completely and utterly 
murderous because of envy. It's because people are not seeking to be content with what they have and the relationships relationships they've had, they have, and their state in life. They constantly want more, and they're told by the culture, you, you should be entitled to have more than what you have. Now, I'm not saying there's no such thing as justice. There is. But most of it is just enticing people to envy and then telling them you're suffering from injustice um, as a kind of gloss over why they feel envious. Uh, be very aware of it. Be very wary of this. Um, you are entitled to precisely nothing. And that's not to say you won't face injustice. It's to say you're entitled to nothing. You deserve nothing. You get nothing. Um, we ought to be completely surprised when blessings come along. Um, and we ought to pray the Psalms. You know, why do the wicked prosper? <laughs> well, this is held in God's, in, in God's knowledge. Um, I will also say that, uh, that uh, envy is a form of pride, and uh, we need to be on guard against pride. Um, and, and the way, oh, the absolute way uh, to have triumph over pride um, is to, uh, I mean, you, you, it's, it's, it's easy to think, well, you know, if pride is bad, then I should, I should try to be humble, and that's the way to become humble. It's like, no, it's not. <laughs> the way, the, the proven way to humility is to make yourself and, and open yourself up to God's grace. And that, is, that happens through prayer, it happens through regular um, receiving of the sacraments. It happens by reading Scripture. Um, and so we open ourselves to this world of grace. And it's this world of grace that leads us to believe. Um, so I want to offer that to you. Um, we, we're involved, brothers and sisters, in a pitched battle against evil. And uh, and and. The way to victory um, is not to fight, and it's not to uh, become murderous, um, and it's not to say we deserve, we deserve, we deserve, I'm entitled, I'm entitled, I'm entitled. Um, it is to rather in humility and in, uh, and in a proper understanding of ourselves uh, to seek the face of God. And... Um, and, and we need, and this is, this is the great thing about the angels, right? <laughs> the angels, uh, hear nothing else today, hear this. Gabriel appears before Zechariah in the temple, where Zechariah is in the very heart of the temple burning incense, which you would think is where he would find God. And Ga- what does Gabriel says? I am Gabriel who stands before the face of God. Um, the angels show us what it means to be beings who behold God. Um, and so I want to offer that to you as a way to think about it. Um, we need that witness, and we need to be uh, altered by it. Um, this is why in the Eucharist we pray with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. We pray holy, holy, holy. Um, it's to be reminded that, um, that we're, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses in this fight. All right, that's all for this week. Thank you.